as Rex is setting up the microphone, we might as well uh, get started with our introduction to our speaker this evening. Kevin Murphy is a Catholic attorney who is committed to fighting for innocent people who have been incarcerated here in the state of Indiana. Kevin works at the newly formed Notre Dame Exoneration Justice Clinic at Notre Dame Law School. The Notre Dame Exoneration Justice Clinic is a group of attorneys and students affiliated with Notre Dame Law School that provide pro bono legal representation to people who have been wrongly convicted. At the clinic, Kevin works closely with and oversees law students in investigating, litigating, and overturning wrongful conviction cases. Kevin also serves as an advocate for legal reforms that seek to prevent and correct wrongful convictions and works to help assist innocent clients with reintegrating into society upon their release from prison. Prior to working at the clinic, Kevin worked for several years as an attorney at the law firm uh, Jenner and Block in Chicago, Illinois. While there, Kevin maintained an active pro, pro bono practice that focused on representing wrongfully convicted individuals, individuals on death row and criminal defendants. In 2017, Murphy was part of the team's attorneys that exonerated a man named Patrick Persley of a murder conviction for which he was serving, had already served 23 years in Illinois prisons. Murphy also helped his client, Hector Garcia, receive relief from Texas death row. Kevin graduated from Notre Dame Law School in 2014. It's also a 2011 graduate of Indiana University in Bloomington because he couldn't get into Purdue. Okay. <laughs> Kidding. Okay. Kevin grew up right here in Carmel. Uh, I've known him his whole life. Pete and Elaine Murphy uh, are his parents. Uh, they're here this evening. We thank you. Uh, thank them for forming uh, Kevin in the, in the ways of faith. I consider him to be like a spiritual son or a nephew or whatever you call him. I always remember when he was in law school, he would text me and say, I got a test. Pray for me. And I always did, uh, which reminded me that his uh, work as an attorney would be uh, in, with his faith in mind. So please join me in welcoming Kevin to talk about the problem of wrongful convictions in our country. Kevin. Over here, right? Great. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you so much, Father Richard. Uh, thank you to the Gospel for Life Committee. Uh, thank you to Shelley for all your assistance with the coordination, and really OLMC as a whole uh, for hosting me uh, tonight. I can't think of any better way to spend a Sunday night than praying for all of the causes, uh, for praying the rosary for all the causes we just prayed for. I mean, what a, a beautiful prayer for the unborn and for those who have uh, lost um, a life in utero, including my wife and I, uh, and so many other vulnerable uh, groups. And uh, so I'm so happy to be here. Uh, as Father Richard mentioned, I was a parishioner here growing up. I was, you know, confirmed about 10 feet from where I'm standing right here. Uh, and uh, this place, more than anywhere else, uh, really feels like a spiritual home base for me. Um, and that's largely because of Father Richard. He has been a spiritual mentor and advisor and friend to me uh, for many years. 
Um, throughout my childhood, I watched as Father Richard captivated and entertained and deeply moved people from standing up here uh, on this stage. And so I've been taking notes all this time, of course, uh, and I'm happy to report that I've figured out the recipe for a, a good presentation here at Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Uh, it takes a, a booming speaking voice, of course, very deliberate uh, and changing cadence, uh, an angelic baritone singing voice, and of course, a lazy and unoriginal joke at the expense of Indiana University. And thank you, Father Richard. You already got me one of those, so didn't take you very long. Um, no, I, I uh, don't have any of those talents that Father Richard has, so I'll have to uh, blaze my own trail. Um, so I'm here to talk about the problem of wrongful convictions uh, here in the United States and also in Indiana, where I you know, focus my work now. Um, many of you probably have some familiarity with wrongful convictions. Um, it would be hard not to, right? There's so many podcasts now, true crime podcasts. I feel like it began with Serial back in 2014. We, I imagine there are some people that have heard the story of Adnan Syed, uh, who was recently exonerated, uh, or watched Making a Murderer on Netflix. Uh, or uh, in the case of my dad, your familiarity might be from the Bob Dylan song, Hurricane. Uh, about uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter, the promising uh, young boxer turned murder convict turned exoneree uh, who was freed uh, after 20 years in prison and memorialized in song. Um, so what is it about these stories uh, that, and these people that is so capable of captivating us and, and tugging at our heartstrings and moving us? Um, and so well, as we'll discuss a little bit more later, wrongfully convicted in individuals have suffered the ultimate injustice. Uh, their lives, their freedom, uh, and ultimately their dignity have been ripped from them based on false premises. Their stories are deeply human stories of pain and of suffering. Uh, in some ways that we'll discuss a little more later, their stories echo the greatest story ever told. Uh, the reason that all of us are here in this church today. So these shows and podcasts, your familiarity with wrongful convictions, um, that's great, and, and those have brought such uh, awareness to these issues, but it's always, you know, in my view, a little bit of an incomplete story. And so uh, what I'm hoping to do tonight is, uh, in my 35 remaining minutes, uh, fill the gaps a little bit and tell you a little bit about what I've learned about wrongful convictions from working on these cases. Um, so I'll start by talking about the problem itself, uh, principally through the lens of the story of two Indiana Hoosiers, uh, Keith Cooper and Andy Royer, uh, who have been exonerated in the last several years. Second, I'll talk about why, from a Catholic perspective, we should be particularly troubled by wrongful convictions. Uh, third, I'll speak briefly to the sp scope of the problem, which, uh, spoiler alert, I, in my view, it's greater than I think most people uh, would, would anticipate. Uh, fourth, I'll talk about the principal causes of the problem, and that will kind of lead into a brief closing um, of how, what I think you know, we and, and you uh, can do to help prevent and correct wrongful convictions. Um, I'm hoping uh, to wrap up with a little bit of time for questions at the end. You know, I think with these issues, particularly ones that impact every community because all communities have crime and have trials, and, and, um, and it's something that people feel very strongly on, and I think it's really, these are issues that are, are best um, engaged uh, with one another um, in, in open dialogue. So I'm happy to answer any questions that, that anyone has. 
So I'll begin uh, with the problem of wrongful convictions. Um, a lot of times, wrongful convictions, uh, the first thing people talk about are the statistics, right? And to be sure, I think those statistics are, are staggering and, and very important to talk about. But I think the risk when you, when you start talking about a problem with statistics is you kind of forget that behind uh, statistics, behind every number, is a face uh, and a life. Um, and, and a person who has had, you know, something taken from them, and not just that person, but their parents, their siblings, their children, who have a giant, you know, hole in their heart uh, because someone was taken away from them without good reason. And so today, that's why I'm going to start uh, by telling the stories of, of Keith Cooper and Andy Royer. Um, my telling of these stories will be a very poor substitute for their telling of those stories, which uh, I'm confident would leave folks in tears, um, but I'll try my best nonetheless. In 1996, Keith Cooper moved his family, uh, which consisted of his wife Cheryl and his three children, eight-year-old Keith Jr., six-year-old Lakeisha, and one-year-old Devon, from Chicago to Elkhart to start a new future. Uh, he was working hard. He worked two jobs, one at an RV factory, uh, another installing, or another at a lumberyard, rather, and he had no criminal record. On January 2nd, 1997, Keith left his wife and his three children at home and went to the grocery store to get bacon and eggs for breakfast that morning. He picked up the groceries. He was on his way back. He was crossing the railroad tracks, and he started to hear sirens. Um, Keith uh, lived in Elkhart, and you know there were, were, was crime at the time, and it wasn't unusual to hear sirens, so he didn't think anything of it. Um, but the blares got louder, uh, and as he kept walking, four police cars suddenly turn the corner and they're heading right at him. Uh, they surround him and they immediately pull their guns out and train them on Keith. And Keith is put under arrest. Uh, Keith is placed in the back of a police vehicle and he's left to wonder, you know, what on earth is going on right now? Uh, meanwhile, just a few blocks away, a girl, his little girl, looks out the sliding glass door of their apartment, waiting and waiting to see uh, when, their daddy, when her daddy is coming back home. Uh, he would not for a very long time. Two months earlier, two black men, one tall and one short, uh, committed an armed robbery at an apartment in Elkhart. Uh, the police had a suspect for the shorter man, but the taller man was at large, and Keith Cooper was a taller black man. Uh, no physical evidence ever, ever connected Keith to the crime. In fact, there was a, a hat found at the crime scene uh, that the police tested for DNA, and Keith was excluded as the source of that DNA. And the victims had said that the assailant was wearing this hat. Um, uh, but nevertheless, uh, the police proceeded uh, with their case against him. And ultimately, the Elkhart police brought in three uh, victims uh, who were present at the, the apartment at the time of the robbery. Uh, and the police officer claimed that they identified Keith Cooper as the tall man, um, who I think I left this out, but shot and nearly killed one of the victims. Um, so it's a horrible, awful crime. There's, there's no question about it. Um, as trial approached, Keith was, of course, unable to work, uh, and his family had to sell all of their possessions, uh, their beds, their mattresses, their furniture, their games, toys for the kids, everything, just to afford their expenses. They were ultimately evicted from their home because they couldn't pay rent. In September of that year, Keith walked into court for what would be a one-day trial. Uh, at trial, the three victims uh, identified Keith, uh, two by his appearance and one by his voice. Uh, one of the victims uh, testified in court 
I would never forget that face. Even though the DNA testing excluded Keith as the source of DNA, his attorney inexplicably agreed to a stipulation uh, that neither Keith nor anybody else could be excluded as the source of the DNA. Based on this evidence, Keith was convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to 40 years in prison. And as he walked out of the courtroom by his family, uh, all he could hear were the words of his son, why are they taking daddy away? Over time, Keith began to lose hope. He lost appeal after appeal. His family had to move out of town and could not even visit him in prison. He was literally watching his children grow up through letters and pictures that his wife was sending. Uh, and then there came a time when even the letters and even the pictures stopped. Uh, his wife, without Keith, Keith was unable to pay any of their bills, and they ultimately ended up homeless, and then in a homeless shelter for a period of time. But slowly over the years, the truth began to trickle out. Uh, a new DNA test, based on better technology, positively identified the individual who was involved uh, with the crime by the hat that was left at the crime scene. His name was Jolanis Irvin, and he was already serving time for another murder in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Uh, then Keith, Keith's co-defendant was exonerated of all of the charges against him. And then the eyewitnesses, the same ones uh, who testified at trial that they could never forget the face of Keith Cooper, admitted that they couldn't identify Keith at first and only did so after the Elkhart police detective pressured them into doing so. So in short, the case that was built against Keith Cooper was false all along. With Keith's co-defendant out, the judge made him an offer. Uh, your conviction will remain intact, but I can let you out of prison on time served right now. You can walk today. And Keith molded over, and Keith took that offer in 2006, uh, 10, years, uh, and 10 years and change after he went to prison. Um, and uh, ultimately, Keith's decision was that he needed to help out his family. And he went straight to them in Chicago at a homeless shelter. Uh, he was reunited with them. And he spoke to his 10-year-old son, Devon, for the first time. I'm your dad, Keith said. And Devon responded, yeah, they say that. Even though Keith was free, he was branded still with the mark of a murderer because of this agreement. Thank you. Uh, and as, as his conviction remained intact, Keith's co-defendant received $5 million in a settlement based on his wrongful conviction, but Keith could receive nothing. But he did have one Hail Mary left, um, in Indiana, an individual can seek a pardon from the governor. Now, you have to first be out of prison for five years under Indiana law, so he waited that time. Um, but pardons in Indiana traditionally had been for people that were not disputing uh, their guilt, and they had served their time, and then the, go the governor, after the fact, pardoned them essentially based on good behavior. Uh, there had not before in Indiana been an actual innocence pardon of someone who was a, con uh, was a, con a convict at the time. Um, so in 2011, Keith sought Indiana's first actual innocence pardon. Uh, the new DNA evidence supported the pardon. The victim supported the pardon. The trial prosecutor wrote a letter uh, to the pardon and parole board supporting the pardon, which is very unusual. Uh, over 100,000 other petitioners, including many Hoosiers across the state, maybe some people in this room, uh, signed a petition for, uh, so in support of that pardon. And the pardon board unanimously recommended to grant the pardon. Uh, but even then, the pardon still sat idly for two and a half years on the governor's desk, even when it was virtually unopposed. 
Uh, when Mike Pence was selected as Donald Trump's running mate in 2016, Heath had new hope in a gubernatorial candidate, uh, Eric Holcomb. Uh, on the campaign trail, uh, Governor Holcomb promised to grant Keith a pardon if the facts supported it. And on February 9th, 2017, in one of his first major actions as governor of the state, uh, he uh, kept his promise and Governor Holcomb granted Keith Cooper a pardon. After 20 plus years uh, being a convicted murderer in the state of Indiana, Keith, in his words, finally had his name back. Andy Royer, uh, like Keith Cooper, uh, lived in Elkhart County. Uh, Andy is an enormous man. Uh, he's, I think, in the ballpark of six feet, eight inches tall, and he is, is built like a, an NFL lineman. He must be 275 plus pounds. Um, but when he was a young man, Andy was involved in a terrible accident. Uh, a telephone pole came crashing down, and Andy pushed someone else out of the way, uh, but it crushed him. Uh, and left him with a debilitating, it, it effectively rewired his brain and left him with a debilitating mental illness. Um, Andy, even as a grown adult, uh, had the mind of, uh, the, the trauma was so great that he had the mind of a 12-year-old child. Sometime after this happened in 2002, Andy was living at the Waterfall High Rise apartment complex uh, in Elkhart, uh, which was for the disabled or elderly. Um, and on Thanksgiving 2002, tragedy stuck struck the complex. A 94-year-old woman named Hel Helen Saylor was strangled in her apartment. Uh, the police investigated, but their leads went cold, uh, and it wasn't until about a year later where Andy uh, agreed to go to the police station, not really knowing you know, what was going on. And Elkhart police officers who knew that Andy had this disability started interrogating him very aggressively. Uh, and the interrogation kept going for a long period of time. It kept going even across two separate days uh, until Andy's will was broken. Uh, the, the chief officer involved uh, threatened Andy. Uh, he fed him information about the crime, and he tricked him, ultimately, uh, into confessing involvement in this crime. And he gave two statements, one on each day, and the state, neither of the statements were inconsistent with one, an one another, and neither of them were consistent with uh, the crime scene evidence, but nonetheless, uh, the state went forward and arrested him. Andy was so confused after he gave these statements that he asked the police officer after he confessed, okay, can I go home now? Are we done? Instead, he was arrested and charged with murder. Uh, his mother, Jeannie Royer, was absolutely horrified and in total disbelief. Andy didn't have a violent bone in his body, and she was terrified of what would happen to him in prison. Uh, on top of his confession, a sheriff's deputy in Elkhart uh, then claimed that a fingerprint that was found at the crime scene had been matched to Andy's supposed co-defendant, uh, a woman by the name of Lana Kanan. Uh, another woman in Elkhart that was facing charges of her own came forward and said that Miss Kanan had made incriminating statements to her, uh, and that Miss Kanan uh, could basically pull the strings of and influence Andy. And so based on these facts, the prosecution went, went forward with a story that Andy Royer was the brawn in this, in this scheme uh, and uh, Lana Kanan was the brains behind it. Uh, both of them were convicted uh, in a joint trial and sentenced to 55 years in prison. Uh, but here again, the truth slowly, and I want to emphasize that because one, of, one thing that can be lost when you're walking through these stories is just the time span. 
that's passing in each, each of these steps is, is years and years of someone, you know, behind bars um, with their liberty restricted, uh, not able uh, to live life, the, li the life that, you know, all of us here are able to live. Um, the time spans are, re are really just, just staggering. Um, so fast forward to 2012, seven years after the conviction, nine years after Andy is arrested, uh, and a post-conviction petition filed by his co-defendant, uh, three separate fingerprint examiners conclude that it was not the left pinky finger of Lana Kanan that was found at the crime scene, like the initial examiner said. In fact, it was not the left hand at all, it was the right hand, it was not the pinky finger, it was the uh, pointer finger, and it was a home health care worker's fingerprint, not Lana Kanan's. It turned out this sheriff's deputy had no training to compare latent fingerprints at all, and it only identified Lana Kanan as the source of the fingerprint because he received pressure from other detectives in the department. Uh, Lana, Andy's co-defendant, was exonerated based on this, this evidence in 2012. And, and even though this same exact evidence was used to convict Andy, he was not exonerated, and he was left in prison for uh, seven plus more years. Uh, and it would take many more petitions, many more arguments, many more appeals, uh, and it took, ultimately, uh, the detective admitting uh, that he had fed Andy information about the crime scene uh, that Andy didn't even know, and that he lied about that at Andy's initial trial uh, to give the, the confession more credibility. I took admissions of, of those facts under oath to get Andy exonerated. Uh, and an, on April 2nd, 2020, Andy walked out of prison, a free man, uh, into the arms of his mother, who had lost her son for over 16 years of his life. Now, wrongful convictions like Keith's and Andy's are so gravely and obviously unjust that it might seem hardly necessary to consider why, from a moral or a theological perspective, they are wrong, right? I mean, an innocent person was de deprived of their liberty for something they did not do. Uh, what more needs to be said than that? Uh, but, but nevertheless, I think it's worth reflecting on why we, as Catholics, should be particularly outraged by wrongful convictions uh, and particularly vigilant to see that wrongful convictions are prevented and corrected. First, we, as Catholics, and as I know many uh, of you who are here tonight, believe that all people are made in the image and likeness of God and have an inalienable and inviolable human dignity. In the words of Pope Francis and Fratelli Tutti, the dignity of others is to be respected in all circumstances, not because that dignity is something we've invented or imagined, but because all human beings possess an intrinsic worth. And this dignity is violated when a person is deprived of their li life or their liberty for a crime they did not commit. As, <clears throat> as uh, the Second Vatican Council wrote in Gaudium Spes, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that one wrong, uh, whatever insults human dignity, including arbitrary imprisonment and several other sim similar things, are infamies indeed. They poison human society, but they do more harm to those who practice them than those who suffer from the injury. Moreover, they are a supreme dishonor to the Creator. So what does that all mean? Well, let's unpack it a little bit. So think about all of the harm that someone like Keith Cooper and someone like Andy Royer has undergone. Uh, they're, they're thrown in prison, they're deprived of their freedom, Keith's family ends up homeless, 
Um, they sell all, all their belongings. His children grow up without a father, uh, and uh, he, he misses their, their entire childhood, right? And Andy, a, a man with a serious mental disability, tricked into confessing to a crime he had nothing to do with, ripped away from his parents, and put in one of the darkest of places um, for years and years, over 16 years, for Andy. So the harm to these people, right, is immense. Uh, it's, it's what one of my other exonerated clients always says is generational harm. It didn't just harm me, it harmed my kids, it harmed their, their kids, his grandkids, and it'll harm, you know, generations of his family. But as terrible as all of that harm and all of that damage is, Gaudium Espes is saying that arbitrary imprisonment does even more harm to those who practice it, to those who are complicit in it, right? And we live, uh, we are citizens in a society right now that practices and yields wrongful convictions in really an intolerably high number. Uh, that society and all of us, no less than these people who are wrongfully convicted, uh, are harmed every time that a wrongful conviction happens. Uh, it is our society as a whole. Not to mention, that's even setting aside when someone is, is you know, put to death for a crime that they didn't commit. Um, and, and so I think it's very clear from, from our, our Catholic tradition that this sort of thing is not tolerable and is, is harmful not just to the individual but, but to all of us. Um, moreover, our faith tradition, of course, and many of, of the people in the scriptures that we look up to, uh, it's filled with examples of holy figures who are subject to this sort of wrongful or unjust incarceration. Um, Daniel and the lions, of course. Daniel was thrown to the lions for, uh, on, based on charges of praying to his God, right? Uh, John the Baptist was handed over, as we heard in, in today's gospel, of course, uh, then ultimately beheaded unjustly because he would not approve of Herod's taking of his brother's wife. And finally, of course, uh, stories of the wrongfully convicted, and in my view and to me, has, have always echoed the story of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As John's Gospel tells us, uh, Jesus was tried by Pontius Pilate, and Pilate told the Jews, I find no guilt in him. Three times Pilate tells them that he found no guilt in Jesus. But nevertheless, Jesus uh, is handed over to the mob and is crucified. And so too have these wrongfully convicted individuals be ha been handed over to the proverbial mob, their lives have been ripped from them. Um, and of course, you know, the big distinction he here is uh, Jesus Christ, uh, his, his crucifixion uh, served, you know, a greater purpose, of course, right? He died for all of our sins. Uh, he saved the world uh, by, by going through that. Um, and there's no such, uh, you know, redeeming quality when we send someone in our society uh, to prison for something that they didn't, didn't do. It's just pain. Uh, oftentimes avoidable and needless pain that uh, fathers rip from children, sons rip from mothers, um, family torn apart. Now stories like Keith's and Andy's are devastating, um, and sadly they're not anomalies. Uh, they happen over and over again in this country. Uh, since 1989, over 3,360 people in the United States have been exonerated of crimes they did not commit. These people spent over 28,000 28, years in prison for crimes they did not do. Again, this is just since 1989 when these things started being 
uh, collected and the numbers started being compiled in a comprehensive way. Here in Indiana, there have been 44 people exonerated of crimes that they did not commit, which is slightly lower than, you know, our percent of, of the population um, uh, of the United States. Uh, it's like 1.3% one, 1 of the exonerations, whereas Indiana is roughly 2% of the population of the United States. Um, in my view, that's in part, though, uh, that, no, that there haven't been many organizations here in Indiana that are looking at wrongful conviction cases. Uh, and in even the first few months of our operation up at Notre Dame, uh, we received many, many um, claims that uh, appear to be legitimate claims of wrongful conviction that are worth investigating. Now, shockingly, 190 of the people who have been exonerated this, in this country were exonerated off of death row. They were set for execution, and they were exonerated and found to be innocent. And what that means is that for every eight people that our country has executed, one person has been exonerated off of death row. So how is that for an error rate for uh, the most severe uh, and permanent of our punishments? Uh, obviously, there are um, many uh, objections to the death penalty, including that, like wrongful convictions, it's a, a, a grievous assault against uh, human dignity. But add on top of that, we can't even get it right. I mean, we have 190 people that have been exonerated off death row. Uh, it seems to me like that's another reason why uh, the death penalty is not tenable. Uh, and any discussion of, of wrongful convictions, I think, would be incomplete with at least, without at least some mention of the factor that race plays in wrongful convictions. Uh, according to a 2022 report, black people are more than seven and a half times more likely than white people to be wrongfully convicted of murder. And they're more than 19 times more likely to be wrongfully convicted of a drug charge. Those are just two examples of, of many uh, that show the role that race plays uh, in wrongful convictions. Now, each of these wrongful convictions uh, is unique in its own right. But when we zoom out and take a look at trends and what's happening at a high level, we see several factors that repeatedly lead to wrongful convictions. Now, there have been whole books written about all of these causes, and I'm going to cover them in two minutes apiece, so it'll be inadequate. But if you'd like to understand more about any of them, I'm, I'm happy to pass on some additional sources. Um, a theme you'll see in these causal factors, though, is that sometimes they're innocent mistakes, uh, and sometimes they're not. So the first is mistaken eyewitness identification. This has played a role in approximately 25% of the wrongful convictions in this country. Um, so some cases are pure mistakes. Uh, a witness uh, thinks that the person that they saw in a lineup or in a photo array is the person that assaulted them. And it turns out, and we know later from, for example, DNA evidence or other forensic evidence, that, that they were wrong. Uh, but that's not how most of the mistaken eyewitness identification cases look. Uh, in many cases, there are procedures uh, that are suggestive of the suspect that, that the police have in mind in many of the wrongful conviction cases. Um, I'll just give a couple examples. I have a, a client uh, who was on death row down in Texas, is now off death row, but is still in prison. Uh, the victim in his case was shown a photo array with his photo the day after uh, an armed robbery in which her brother was shot and killed happened. Um, she, was, she was the only surviving witness. Um, she's shown a photo array with his picture, and she does not say that he, that he was the person that was there. Now, fast forward two weeks, 
Um, he's been arrested based on, uh, my, my client has been arrested by, based on a tip from someone else who is trying to uh, curry favor with the police. Uh, and his, his picture is posted on the front page of the local, local paper of record. Later in that day, they take a picture that's identical to that picture, uh, or, or virtually identical, and they go back over to the witness's house, and they show her a new photo array. The photo looks the same as the newspaper, and on top of that, uh, the, uh, my client, uh, unlike anyone else in the, the array, is pictured in orange prison clothing. She, of course, identifies him uh, as the assailant. She read the paper, and he's in orange clothing. Um, and he is still serving time. This was 1989. Uh, he's been in prison for um, 30, 34 years at the ballpark. Um, another case, uh, the, the only, one of the only eyewitnesses, uh, and this is an Indiana case, one of the only eyewitnesses uh, said initially, I just saw a white guy um, involved in the crime. And then all of a sudden, at the trial, uh, he specifically says, I saw this white guy, and points to the defendant at the defendant's table. He had never been shown a photo array. He had never been walked through an in-person lineup where he identified him. Uh, this just happened. It's what, what we call a show-up. And a show-up is where only one suspect uh, is shown, and there's a clear suggestion to a witness that, well, if they're just showing me this one person, it's probably the right guy. So those are just a couple examples, uh, and, and like we saw in Keith Cooper's case, I mean, sometimes it's even more egregious, where there's clear pressure, uh, not even a subtle nod uh, to a certain witness, but, but clear pressure on a witness to identify a certain person. So that's the first of the, the principal causes. Uh, the second one is false confessions, and we saw this in Andy's case. And to the ordinary person, and I know to me when I first, you know, was confronted with this, this issue, it seems really like far-fetched the idea that an innocent person might confess uh, to a crime that they didn't do, right? Um, but there are researchers and there's a ton of empirical study that has been done on this issue, uh, on this phenomenon really, and uh, in known false confession cases, and I'm talking about cases where we know from DNA evidence uh, that this person was not involved in the crime, and there are several factors that repeatedly lead to false confession. And the first, and this is straight out of Andy Royer's case, is a compromised reasoning ability of the suspect. So we're talking people with mental disability, we're talking uh, people that are youths oftentimes, or we're talking people that are subject to a lot of uh, a high stress or a high pressure uh, scenario. Um, second and relatedly, uh, elements of intimidation or threats or abuse are a big um, factor in, in false confession cases. And you look at, I mean, if anyone's been reading the news in Illinois over the past two decades, it is, um, you know, the, the most famous example of this is, is uh, the uh, Commander Burge, uh, who him and other police officers in Chicago uh, systematically tortured black men to get confessions for crimes for years and years and years and did it with impunity for years and years and years. Um, but sadly, this, you know, isn't limited uh, to Illinois. Um, we have an Indiana case where a police officer told the criminal defendant that if he didn't confess, the police officer would strap him to the gurney and start pumping that profanity into your veins. And the man who received that threat is still in Indiana prison today. A third, devious interrogation tactics, and the primary one here is when the, a police officer lies to a suspect about what other evidence shows. 
Uh, so this is often used in connection with a related one, which is a, a, a mistaken belief on the part of the suspect that confessing will actually yield them a more favorable sentence or, or no charges even. Um, and so an example of this is, you know, we ran the DNA, we found DNA at the crime scene, we ran you, and you're a match. We know you're there. We know you were there. Or we have your, we have this other guy next door, and he said that you did it. And he said that you were, you know, the ringleader, really. Um, and, and we'll help you out. You know, if, if, you, if you tell us the truth, we'll help you out. But if you don't tell us right now, you know, there's nothing we can do for you. And it's those kind of things, that combination of, um, dishonesty, which is legal. I mean, most people, I was like shocked to hear that like it's legal for, for a police officer to lie to a suspect in custody about what the other evidence shows, but it's perfectly legal. In Indiana, even if you're a minor, they can lie to you about what the evidence uh, shows. And that in connection with this belief that you're going to get, you know, leniency or favorable treatment. Um, that's false confessions. Uh, the third, uh, false or misleading forensic evidence. There are all sorts of uh, pseudosciences that previously were thought to be reliable that have now been undermined by, by developments in better science. And just a couple examples of these, uh, to be quick, bite mark evidence, uh, arson evidence. Um, you know, they're used to, people used to think that alligatoring, the, these sort of marks that look like alligator skin, uh, on the floor of, of a burnt house were an indication, indication that it, was, it must have been an intentionally set fire. Uh, we now know from science that that's uh, just not the case. Um, so in some cases, uh, also, it's not necessarily a bad science, but the misapplication of a good science. And that's turning back to Andy Royer's case. You know, fingerprint evidence is sound science, um, mo most feel. Uh, and, uh, but in some cases we have examiners doing what is otherwise a sound science uh, incorrectly. Fourth, jailhouse informants. Um, a jailhouse informant is someone that testifies that while they were incarcerated with, with a person, that person confessed involvement in the crime to them. Um, so jailhouse informant testimony is very powerful. Uh, this person confessed, you know, to me that they did this crime, and they're telling the jury that. Um, but there are two huge reliability problems with this sort of evidence. Uh, the first is it's, it's basically impossible to either refute or corroborate it. It's never recorded because if the police were to place someone in uh, a cell with someone else and wire them to try to get an admission, they would have to advise that person of their right to a lawyer and get a waiver first. So there's rarely, rarely recorded uh, recordings of these so-called conversations. Uh, but second and more importantly, there is a massive incentive for other folks who are in jail or who are in prison to, to say that these sort of confessions or incriminating statements were made regardless of whether they're true. In almost all these cases, there are promises of leniency or sentence reductions or some other type of favorable treatment. Uh, and in one of the most egregious cases, uh, there was a man in Philadelphia who for years and years testified in homicide cases about how his cellmates had confessed to him uh, and his prowess in obtaining confections was so great that they uh, referred to him as the Monsignor. Um, and, uh, of course, none of the confessions were true. And uh, a number of people got out of prison because this, this man was making up these stories about confessions that were given to him in prison. So I will take Monsignor Duncan over that Monsignor any day. Uh, fifth principle cause, uh, ineffective assistance of lawyers. Uh, this isn't just, you know, my lawyer made a boo-boo, a, a tiny slip-up. This is like grievous errors in the trial that likely changed the result. 
you know, there have been books written about this issue too, and, um, and um, sadly there is a dual track justice system in this country where uh, if you can't afford a good attorney, you are, you are going to have vigorous representation, challenging every piece of evidence, advocacy before trial, uh, and if you don't, you know, that's just, it's just a totally different case, and uh, you, you may have a lawyer that's overworked, under-resourced, and underfunded, and uh, that leads to 25% of the wrongful convictions. Uh, and sixth and finally, the most common factor involved in wrongful conviction cases is official misconduct. It's involved in 57% of wrongful conviction cases. Um, that, you know, to me it, it is staggering because that shows that these cases, you know, these are not cases where it is just an accident. And I want to be clear here, I am not uh, in any sense like an anti-police or defund the police uh, believer. Uh, the police uh, perform an absolutely critical uh, function in our society and are overwhelmingly uh, outstanding, ethical, hardworking police and prosecutors that are making their communities better places. Um, but uh, the fact is that there are uh, at least some instances uh, across the country of police officers and prosecutors not living up to their burdens. And I think even, you know, the most staunch defenders of law enforcement um, must admit that, that, that law enforcement can't in all cases be above scrutiny. And if something that members of, of police offices uh, police departments, rather, or prosecutors' offices are doing is leading to wrongful convictions, then that needs to be a problem that we talk about and address. Uh, I think, um, you know, that I, I'm kind of running low on time here, so I want to get just to the end, which is, uh, you know, what can we as, as citizens uh, and as members of the public do to help address uh, this problem of wrongful convictions. Uh, at Notre Dame, you know, Father Richard alluded to this a little bit, we're working on, uh, with students at Notre Dame, investigating, uh, uncovering, and litigating wrongful conviction cases. We uh, only take cases where uh, the person is claiming and there's, there's credible evidence to support that they're actually innocent. So there's this misconception of innocence lawyers sometimes that they're trying to find uh, procedural, you know, quirks or irregularities to get a guilty guy out of prison. Uh, that is certainly not what's going on at Notre Dame. And in my experience with other innocence attorneys, that's not what's going on at all. Uh, I think there's far more innocent people kept in prison by procedural quirks than there are uh, guilty people let out of prison for that reason. Um, but, you know, for those, uh, but we don't operate at Notre Dame in any sort of vacuum. And there are many ways for people outside uh, of innocence clinics to help the cause. So the first one is an easy one. We all did it together tonight. And that's praying for the wrongfully convicted, praying for their families, praying for those prosecutors or judges who have a say in their fate, and praying, of course, for all the victims of crime who um, at, and, at, 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 at some fault of, of innocence, folks, sometimes are forgotten in the mess. People who have had horrible, horrible crimes committed to them are, are just as worthy of, of our prayers in all of these cases. Um, so pray, of course. That's, that's uh, an easy one. Um, two, educate yourselves. Now, you guys all came out tonight, um, so congratulations. You've checked that box. Um, but no, this is just meant to be, you know, a uh, 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 primer, and there's so much more to read and learn about these issues, uh, including here in Indiana. So I encourage you all um, to look more into them, and if you'd like to talk after, I'm happy to answer questions uh, about, uh, about this sort of work and some of the issues involved. Uh, three, there's so many common sense reforms 
that we can bring about here in Indiana uh, to help prevent and correct wrongful convictions. Three quick ones off the top. False confessions, um, like I talked about, one of the causes is uh, dishonest information given to people about their, their role in a crime. Uh, other states, including Illinois and Oregon, have recently passed legislation barring, at least in cases of minors who are under 18, uh, you can't lie to them in the course of a custodial interrogation. That seems like the bare minimum that we could ask. Don't lie to our children? I mean, like, what, a, what an easy one, right? Uh, so I think that's, that's a common sense one that can really help. Um, second, uh, 25 of the states in this country, but not Indiana, have passed a comprehensive package of eyewitness identification reforms that are designed at basically ensuring that the things that we can control in an eyewitness identification you know, we do in a way that's, that's not suggestive. So that means double-blind procedures. You know, neither the administrator nor the, the witness knows who the suspect is. Uh, instruction, instructions given to the witness, including the assailant might not be in this lineup. They might not be one of the people that you're looking at. Um, confident statements being required. That means they have to say, I think it could be them, I'm pretty sure it's the guy, but not 100% certain, or I am 100% certain. You know, that is something that's, that's uh, not done commonly uh, absent this, this sort of reform. Uh, and finally, documentation of the lineup procedure. It's very important for the integrity of these lineups for them to be documented. Uh, and finally, jailhouse informants. You know, there's an easy reform that, that has been uh, passed in Illinois and other states basically requiring, requiring these reliability hearings before that evidence ever gets near a jury. Uh, and if it turns out that, that, that the jailhouse informant does not appear a reliable person uh, and has maybe, for instance, t testified in 10 to 15 other cases about people confessing to them, that type of evidence might not come in at all. Um, and finally, and most importantly, or maybe not most importantly, these are all, these are all important, um, learn about wrongful conviction cases and when opportunities arise, reach out to your elected officials here in Indiana about them. I told you know the story of Keith Cooper and his exoneration here in Indiana never would have happened but for the support of Hoosiers. And it's really an inspiring story of how when we all come together to support a good cause, a uh, difference can be made. And uh, so I'd encourage you all to get involved with this cause. It's, uh, it, it's a good cause that I believe is close uh, to the heart of God. And uh, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity uh, to be here talking with this wonderful organization uh, about this this uh, important uh, issue. Thank you all. Are there?